Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And today we bring you yet another installment in our ongoing series about famous people during times of war or Star Wars. As is only appropriate for a series called Star Wars, The last three episodes of this series constitute a trilogy. And who better to begin a trilogy than the star whose misbegotten album, Trilogy, gave us the topic of our second episode. My name is Francis Albert. Francis Albert Sinatra. Frank Sinatra's rise to fame as a singer, radio personality, and movie star more or less coincided exactly with the run-up to and fighting of World War II. A game-changing heartthrob and teen idol, Sinatra was the most beloved man in America during this period, at least to girls and women. To American men, particularly those overseas fighting the war, Sinatra was, as historian William Manchester later put it, the most hated man of World War II, much more than Hitler. The reason for this was the perception that Sinatra had improperly dodged the draft. And not only was he shirking his responsibility to avoid personal danger, but while so many men of fighting age were risking their own lives for the cause, Sinatra was at home living it up and seducing their women. How true are the allegations that Sinatra dodged the draft and how did staying home from the war impact his stardom and leave an indelible mark on his life and career? Join us 
won't you, for the first of three episodes about Hollywood men who didn't go to war, beginning with the story of Frank Sinatra. October 1944. Over 11 million Americans are enlisted in the military. And overseas, the U.S. Army is bringing the war to German soil for the first time, ultimately capturing the city of Aachen. Meanwhile, in New York City's Times Square, teenage girls in bobby socks begin lining up at 3 a.m. in front of the Paramount Theater to see a singer who had made a name for himself several years before on the very same stage, crooning love songs as the opening act before mediocre movies. Now, that same skinny crooner was spending most of his days filming his own movies, and his nights seducing all manner of movie starlets. He didn't have to come back to the Paramount. In doing so, he gave all those girls lining up in the streets the impression that he hadn't forgotten about them. It may be hard to imagine if you're only familiar with the aged chairman of the board of the 70s and 80s, or with the rat packer of the original Ocean's Eleven, but back in his 20s, Frank Sinatra was the first pop idol who attracted a specifically teenage audience. Sinatra himself had not had the typical experience of being teenage, although his was less atypical for its day. Raised in Hoboken, New Jersey by an overbearing mother who was both something of a local political fixer and also a midwife oft arrested for performing abortions, Frankie had dropped out of high school when he was 16 with dreams of becoming a singer, just like Bing Crosby. Frank was so obsessed with Bing that he started walking around Hoboken wearing a yachting cap, just like Crosby's, which must have gone over well at the odd menial labor jobs worked by young Frank during the depths of the Depression. Mama Dolly Sinatra didn't exactly approve of her son's ambitions. When she saw Bing's picture on Frank's bedroom wall, she threw her shoe at Frank and called him a bum. But she couldn't resist using her local influence to get him singing gigs, and she lent him money for sheet music, and, most importantly, his very own microphone. Look at me I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree I feel like I'm Frank Sinatra would emulate Bing Crosby's understanding of how to work with amplification and improve upon it. The difference between Bing and Frank was that Bing was cool, where Frank was hot. Bing left his personal life out of his persona. Frank was always highly emotional, lusty, mopey, angry, often all at once. And from very early in his career, he felt like it was his only job to connect to the meaning of the lyrics and use those feelings to fuel his performance. No wonder he exerted such a power over teenage girls. Frank Sinatra sang with angst. And now the purple dusk of twilight time Steals across the meadows of my heart. Sinatra spent his early career upstaging the bands he sang with. 
His first real gig was as the fourth member of a singing group called The Four Flashes, with which Sinatra won the 1930s equivalent of American Idol, the original amateur hour hosted by Major Edward Bowes. Through Bowes, Sinatra landed his first ever movie role in a biograph short in which the other members of The Flashes sang, and Frank had a walk-on part as a waiter in blackface. Frank wasn't popular within this band, Jealous of this skinny Italian kid who somehow managed to have his way with any and all women in sight, the other Flashes would often put Frankie in his place by punching his lights out. And it wasn't just men who got jealous and caused trouble. The fall of 1938, Frank was juggling two dames. The nice, not-spectacularly-pretty New Jersey girl Nancy Barbato, and Antoinette Della Penta, who was the definition of a bad girl. One night, both girls showed up at the tavern where Frank was working as a singing waiter. They each knew who the other was, and they started an epic catfight. The next night, Frank had just finished singing Night and Day when the cops came in to arrest him. Antoinette was bringing up on charges of having, quote, sexual intercourse with the said complainant who was then and there a single female of good repute for chastity, whereby she became pregnant. As it turned out, Antoinette was neither pregnant nor single, and she was forced to drop the charges. Nancy Barbato was the ultimate victor of the catfight, and soon Frank Sinatra made her his wife. But Frank's way of inflaming female passions and the criminal record it earned him ultimately didn't hold him back. He graduated from dinner theater, first to the Harry James Band, and then to one of the biggest bands of the big band era, the orchestra of Tommy Dorsey. It was as Tommy Dorsey's hired singer that Frank first performed at the Paramount on a four-week stand in the spring of 1940. This was where it first became apparent that Sinatra had unusual drawing power when it came to teenage girls. They would line up at the crack of dawn to get into the 9 a.m. show, and because it was paramount policy to not clear the house between shows, the girls would stay in their seats through the next four performances, even if it meant packing a lunch and or not using the bathroom. The pandemonium was such that at the end of the night, in order to get through the crowds and safely to his hotel room, Frank required a police escort. That May, Sinatra and the Tommy Dorsey band recorded a song called I'll Never Smile Again. It became the first number one single on the first ever Billboard chart, and by summer 1940, Frank Sinatra was not just a sensation in Times Square. He was a nationwide star. He was also a married man, and as of June 1940, a father. Frank was in New York performing at the Hotel Astor the night Nancy Sinatra Jr. was born, and Nancy Sr. would functionally become a single mother until she and Frank finally moved into a new house together in Toluca Lake several years later. Little Nancy would remember sitting through civil defense blackouts without her dad, who, to a two-year-old girl, registered as nothing but, quote, a figure composed of a bow tie and two black patent leather shoes, who was always going away. Nancy Sr. was a good Italian girl who had had an Italian father, and she knew the score. 
she basically didn't expect fidelity, only a modicum of respect and security. But Frank couldn't even clear that low of a bar. He was never home, and he couldn't stand being lonely, so he screwed around constantly. Infidelities soothed one kind of pain, but caused another, making Frank feel guilty for his betrayals. Frank complained to his friend, songwriter Sammy Kahn, that he hated being married. And Sammy Kahn gave him this advice. Well, you're on the road all the time. You can at least go home to clean sheets. In December 1940, with just about every other man of less than middle age in America, Frank Sinatra registered for the Selective Service and was immediately granted a deferment on account of being a father to a young child. A year later, Frank and some friends were passed out at Lana Turner's house after a raucous Saturday night party when Lana's no-nonsense mom stormed in and announced that Pearl Harbor had been bombed and the U.S. was now at war. Sinatra spent much of 1942 at war with Tommy Dorsey. His attempts to get out of his contract with the band leader became a story swollen into myth in The Godfather. For our purposes, it's a story for another day. But by 1943, Sinatra was a free man, now headlining at the Paramount by himself, an unheard of feat for a solo singer. But he needed help guiding his career, and thus top publicist George Evans went to see Sinatra in January 1943 to see if he wanted to take the job. Evans assumed that he didn't. He assumed that Sinatra was just another singer. He assumed wrong. But it wasn't Sinatra's voice that impressed Evans so much as the reaction that voice got from the crowd. Evans felt like the room was warm with the female pheromones of hundreds of girls in heat. He swore he could hear, amidst the cheers and chants of the masses, a few isolated moans of orgasm. Evans immediately set to work turning this organic response into a gimmick. He coached Sinatra to caress the microphone like it was a woman. He hired extra girls to shout specific things at strategic moments during songs. He had an ambulance park outside the theater. And Evans fed reporters a new nickname for his phenom client. Swoonatra. Evans saw that with the war raging, there was a vacuum for feel-good stories waiting to be filled. He thus crafted a new publicity bio for Sinatra, recasting the high school dropout as a star high school athlete and changing his abortionist mother into a World War I nurse. Photographers were sent to Sinatra's New Jersey home to document the domestic bliss he supposedly shared with the two Nancys. This all worked well enough at first, and then in early 1943, a Sinatra single knocked White Christmas off the top of the Billboard chart, and Hollywood took notice. By the end of that summer, Sinatra, who had never really acted to this point, had been signed to a seven-year movie contract by RKO. That fall, Sinatra reported to the draft board. The government needed so many able-bodied men that they were getting rid of deferments for married fathers, which meant that unless there was something wrong with Frank physically, he would be expected, all but forced, to sign up. In October 1943, 
Frank was examined and declared fit for service, classified 1A. But then, about six weeks later, Sinatra reported to the Newark Draft Board again, and a different doctor examined him. This time, Sinatra was declared 4F, unfit for service. The second doctor, a Captain Joseph Weintraub, who used the name Frank Albert Sinatra in his report and not the singer's birth name Francis, claimed that Sinatra was unfit due to a perforated left ear. He also noted that at 119 pounds, the 5'7 Sinatra was 4 pounds lighter than the army minimum, and that the famous singer suffered from emotional instability. Some of this report is basically impossible to question. Frank had always been skinny, and in recent years, his emotional state had been less stable than ever. In launching his solo career, Frank had suffered from debilitating attacks of nerves, which kept his stomach too upset for him to eat, and caused him to lose any meat that had been on his bones in the first place. And he was always talking about dying, breaking down and telling the tough guys in his entourage about his premonitions that the angel of death was coming for him. Even so, to many, many observers, Sinatra's sudden reprieve from service, particularly after he had been declared physically fit, looked like calculated draft dodging. There were well-publicized rumors that Sinatra had paid $40,000 to the second examining doctor to gin up a 4F that would keep Frank out of uniform. Receiving an anonymous letter about this allegation, columnist Walter Winchell forwarded the letter onto J. Edgar Hoover, who then opened an investigation. Captain Joseph Weintraub, the doctor who had examined Sinatra for the second time, was then forced to defend his decision and his explanation focused primarily on Sinatra's emotional and mental issues. Weintraub wrote a letter, which ended up in Sinatra's FBI file, noting, quote, The patient stated that he was neurotic, afraid to be in crowds, afraid to go in an elevator. Makes him feel that he would want to run when surrounded by people. This further explanation didn't silence the skeptics. Sinatra regularly performed in front of thousands of screaming girls, and we were supposed to believe he was afraid of crowds? In fact, Sinatra was afraid of those crowds. He was afraid that if he went off to war and halted his career to do it, by the time he got back, the screaming girls would have found another crooner to swoon over. Bing Crosby wasn't going to war, and neither were a number of other new male solo singers coming up behind Sinatra. Sinatra had real problems, but he also had a real incentive to keep working throughout the war. Newspaper writers and readers may have been looking for diversionary news in 1943, but the idea that the new heartthrob of pop music was a draft dodger was too juicy for conservative columnists to resist. The general perception, stoked by the papers but quick to gain purchase amongst men away in the armed services or stationed at home, was that Sinatra had weaseled out of the dire straits they themselves were in and was using his freedom to live it up and have his way with a nation of women whose husbands, in doing their duty, had left their sweethearts behind. This wasn't an incorrect perception. 
Frank Sinatra was partying constantly and sleeping with every woman who would have him, which was most of them. When he came out to Hollywood to work for RKO, the Nancys and the newly born Frank Sinatra Jr. stayed back in New Jersey, and Frank's suite at the Wilshire Tower became ground zero for a nonstop bacchanal. His entourage, now known as the Varsity, played poker at all hours of the day. Starlets and prostitutes came and went, and his inability to serve wasn't hurting him financially either. In fact, in early 1944, Louis B. Mayer saw Frank sing for the first time and decided then and there to poach Sinatra away from RKO and make him an MGM star. And what Louis B. Mayer wanted, he got. Under his new contract to MGM, Sinatra made over $800,000 in 1944, which made him the highest-paid entertainer in the world at that time. Sinatra was living pretty much the highest, most decadent life imaginable, and he was doing it as an Italian man whose visible, unapologetic ethnicity enraged his critics all the more. Even President Roosevelt, whom Frank worshipped, made a crack on the one occasion that the two met about the fact that Frank, quote, would never have made them swoon in our day, which Frank interpreted as a subtle ethnic slur. Sinatra's otherness, combined with his success, made him an easy target for a right-wing press increasingly enraged over what was perceived as a communist threat which was usually itself a code word for any kind of person or policy that challenged white male supremacy by supporting civil rights, ethnic equality, or social welfare. Columnists such as Lee Mortimer rallied against Sinatra for having, quote, found safety and $30,000 a week behind a mic. Stars and Stripes magazine ran a long essay detailing Sinatra's power over women, the very women that readers of Stars and Stripes magazine had uneasily left behind and left vulnerable to the singing wolf's seductions. In a later article, the military publication would sniff of Sinatra's appeal, Mice Make Women Faint Too. It's notable that Sinatra's first big movie at MGM, intentionally or otherwise, countered his image as a draft-dodging gigolo in a number of significant ways. In Anchors Away, Frank was cast as a sailor on leave. He'd spend the film wearing the uniform that he had been so mocked for not wearing in real life. He'd also play a nervous choir boy, hopeless with women, while his co-star, Gene Kelly, was coded as the stud. Kelly had played the male romantic interest to two big female stars, Judy Garland and Rita Hayworth, in two musical hits, For Me and My Gal and Cover Girl, before he enlisted in the Navy, which assigned him to a documentary unit in Washington, D.C. Having just returned from that post, Kelly was going to star in Anchors Away as well as direct its dance numbers. He was an athlete with ballet training, and though he and Frank were the same height, the dancer had 30 pounds of pure muscle on the singer. Frank was still basically a novice actor, but he had never danced a step in his life. Since this was a big break for Kelly as a choreographer, it wouldn't have done him any good to let Sinatra make a fool of himself. So Kelly worked hard to get Sinatra dancing at the highest level possible, 
and then dulled down his own dancing ability so that no one noticed much of a disparity between the two of them. Sinatra's big solo song in the movie was a new track called I Fall in Love Too Easily. If you had asked Nancy Sinatra, she might have said it was her husband's theme song off screen, too. I fall in love too easily. I fall in Return to October 1944. After filming Anchors Away, but before it opened, Frank Sinatra made a triumphant return to the Paramount Theater. More girls lined up in the street than ever before, and in an attempt to please the rabid crowds, the theater manager let 5,000 ticket buyers into a room whose max capacity was listed at 3,500. The crowd was 10 to 1 female to male. When Frank took the stage, at least 9,000 feet stomped on the floor. The girls made so much noise that he couldn't hear himself sing. When the first show was over, only 200 of the 5,000 in the audience left. The rest settled in, intending to stay for all five shows. What this meant was that most of the thousands of girls waiting in the street would never get in to see Frank sing. Girls wept and fainted and pushed, and they were not the only ones expressing frustration. At some point during the day, a young man named Alexander J. Dorogakupets was thrown out of the Paramount for throwing eggs at the main attraction. The first egg missed. The next two were direct hits to Sinatra's face, and the fourth egg stopped the show. Later that day, a party of drunk sailors showed up at the theater with a bag full of tomatoes. That late in the day, they had no hope of pushing past the impassioned girls out front to get inside, so instead, they pelted the rotten fruit at an image of Frank on the Paramount's marquee. All of this combined into what was later called the Paramount Riot. It was the first event of its kind, the first time a pop star inspired such mass hysteria. And it was a turning point for Sinatra and, in a subtle way, for the national culture. Within a few months, the war would be over. Sinatra would finally go overseas to entertain the troops after the halt in hostilities. He brought along with him comedian Phil Silvers, who would prime the hostile crowds of soldiers by mercilessly making fun of Sinatra before he came up to sing. The act worked, and the crowds warmed to Frank. Although, Sinatra immediately blew most of the goodwill he earned on this tour by telling reporters afterwards that the USO was incompetent at running their shows. As smooth as Sinatra could be, when it came to positioning himself in relation to this war, he always seemed to be out of sync. Luckily for him, soon afterwards, Anchors Away became a massive box office success, earning Oscar nominations for Kelly and also the song Frank introduced in the film, I Fall in Love Too Easily. 
Kelly and Sinatra would go on to one-up their sailor act in the musical masterpiece, On the Town. Talk about irony. With these two musicals and his Academy Award-winning performance in From Here to Eternity, Sinatra's best-remembered work as an actor has him playing the role of a World War II soldier. For all the perceived divide between Sinatra and the rock and roll generation that would start to make themselves known in the 50s, Sinatra mania opened the floodgates that would make subsequent youth revolutions possible. In terms of events that catalyzed large groups of young people, you can draw a line, maybe not a straight line, maybe a sort of wonky line, but a line from Sinatra through Elvis and the Beatles to the protests against the Vietnam War. Of course, by the end of that line, Sinatra himself was middle-aged and had politically moved very far to the right, to the extent that he and his young wife Mia Farrow took opposing sides on Vietnam. If Sinatra had fought in World War II, he probably wouldn't have been able to act as that bridge figure between generations. But he also may not have attracted the attention of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, who tried really hard to bring Sinatra down over the coming years and decades. But that is a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode, like all of our episodes, was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please help us spread the word. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod and rate and review us on iTunes. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. And now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived a life this full I traveled each and every byway Oh, and more, much more than this I did it right